we give thanks for the Word of God in music. And now we come to the Word of God in Scripture. Let us join together in prayer. Oh God, we pray for attentive hearts as we read the Scriptures before us today. That in these words we might see and hear and feel a sense of your word and what we've been called to to see and be and do. In Christ's name, amen. So my text uh, for this morning uh, comes from the lectionary, a bit of an extended, extended portion of the lectionary. And it says in here that I'll be reading Ephesians 2 selected verses, but honestly, I couldn't figure out what to exclude. So I'm going to read the entirety of the second chapter of Ephesians. And I invite you to follow along in your pew Bible if you'd like to, um, because this is really extraordinary. Um, Now, when you preached a lot, you feel like you preached on every passage of Scripture in the Bible, but I honestly don't think I've ever preached on this passage before, and that's why I'm so excited about it. Um, So let's hear what um, the author of Ephesians has to say to the church. And by the way, um, this is attributed to the Apostle Paul. It's probably from a later period in the spirit of Paul. So it's Pauline thought for a later period period. And that's the gist of the whole of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived. Following the course of this world, following the ruler of the powers of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among among the passions of our flesh, following the desires of the flesh and senses. We were, by nature, children of wrath, like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of great love for us, which God loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By the grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with us, with God, in heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, God might show the immeasurable riches of God's grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift from God, not as a result of works so that one might boast, for we are what God made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. So then, remember that at one time, you Gentiles by birth called the uncircumcised by those who were circumcised. 
a physical circumcision in the flesh by human hands, remember that at one time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in the place of the two, thus making peace that we might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you that were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, both of us have access to the spirit of God the Father and Mother. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are also built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> a few years ago, uh, the Christian Century magazine invited a uh, bunch of ministers and uh, biblical scholars and theologians to uh, summarize the gospel in seven words. Isn't that a great idea, seven words. A lot of them won't be surprising to you, but one was surprising. It's a paraphrase of Ephesians 2, um, one of the verses that we just read. This is Ellen Cherry, a theologian at Princeton Seminary. Her summary of the gospel in seven words. The wall of hostility has come down. Count them. The wall of hostility has come down. That's a remarkable summary of the gospel when you think about it. Now, you might ask the question, what, what, what's the hostility between? Is it hostility between God and us? A traditional answer, to be sure, but in my opinion, not a biblical answer, but that's another sermon. The hostility that Ephesians talks about is between people. It's between Jews and Gentiles. It's a racial hostility that has created not only cultural difference, but cultural precedence, hierarchies of value. 
It's created uh, what we would call today racism. It's created institutional apartheid. This hostility has come down, says Ephesians, through the cross of Jesus Christ. Now you might ask the question, how so? And Ephesians tells us that that hostility was put to death in the cross of Jesus Christ. An interesting idea, isn't it? It's a baptismal idea, too, I think. Um, you may know that uh, Paul in Romans chapter 6 captures this baptismal in imagery. We, uh, as we go down into the waters of baptism, we go down into the death of Jesus that we might come out up in the life of Jesus. And we sometimes affirm that when we baptize someone. But it's important to remember this, this death-tending stuff that we are supposed to name at baptism. We name it. I think one of the most important questions that we, that we offer at a baptism is offered of the, either the candidate, if it's an adult, or of the parent or parents, and that is, do you renounce evil in the world, that which defies God's righteousness or justice and love? Do you renounce it? In other words, do you name it? It's an important thing that we do in a baptism. I know, I know that baptisms often, um, you know, it's, it's often of a baby, and it's hard, it's hard to renounce evil when, when you've got a baby present for you, but you know, and we all know, that that child is going to grow up, and that child will have inscribed on her or him the sins of the world, the isms of the world, racism, classism, sexism, homophobia, all that stuff gets inscribed on all of us. Korea, Korea has a, uh, a notion uh, for this, and it's called Han, H-A-N, which is an inscription of, of oppression. It's a wound that, that, that lands on us and keeps us down. All of us. It's important that we name that stuff at a baptism. And as we renew our baptism here, and we do it every Sunday, as Kate or Alec or Kelly or whether I do it, uh, whether we, we pour the water into the baptismal font and we remember our baptism, we remember who we are and whose we are, but we also remember that which is died in us or that which is trying to be healed in us, which is all the inscriptions of the world, the woundedness of the world that gets placed on us. That's happening at baptism. It's important to remember that and name it. But that's not all. Because as we come out of the water of baptism, and you know, I was baptized as a Baptist. I was literally immersed. And, and that's why if I ever do a baptism, I use a lot of water. Because I think this kid or this candidate really needs to sense something of the power of water. And when you come out out of water, out of the baptismal font, it's an amazing thing. You're all wet, and you come out, and you say, and then, and, and, and often the one doing it will say uh, it, it, that this person is brought out of death into new life. Now, Ephesians says this beautifully. It says, using baptismal imagery, that we are lifted up to heavenly places where God can show us the immeasurable riches of God's grace. These heavenly places are, are is, 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 this is a powerful place to ponder 
who God is in our midst. See, we have been, we have been lifted up out of the swamp of the violence of the world to ponder what we've been called to be and do as one of God's own, as one who has been cleansed from that, from that violence, from all that stuff that is on it, from the Han, so that we might see and know and love and ponder a God and God's immeasurable, immeasurable riches. Of late, I have been uh, reading, um, rereading in some cases, the theology of Karl Rahner, the great Catholic theologian, who was so influential on many Catholic and Protestant uh, theologians in the 20th century. Um, I think I've been reading him because he was influential upon people coming out of World War II Germany, coming out of the Holocaust, coming out of uh, a pondering of what uh, Nazism and Arianism did to their country. People that were influenced by Karl Rahner are, are, are well known to us. Uh, Jürgen Moltmann, who wrote The Crucified God. Um, Johann Baptist Metz, who is probably not as familiar to, um, to Protestants, but as a famous Roman Catholic theologian, Dorothy Soli, all of them came out of the same context, were teenagers during World War II, were teenagers living through that horror and trying to sort it out in their theology. One of the ways Karl Rahner did it was, was quite astounding. He, he pondered a God that was not captive was not captive to any one image, any kind of exclusivism and triumphalism that might justify violence. He talked about God as the ever-expanding horizon that can never be captured in any one image and notion. The ever-expanding horizon of our yearning. And so, and so as Elizabeth Johnson, the, the, the great theologian who talks about, we read some of her, by the way, some of you who have been in some of my book groups, uh, her, her take on Karl Rahner, because she was also influenced by Karl Rahner. She talks about uh, Karl Rahner's theology as the God that is ever greater and ever nearer. So for Karl Rahner, God is the infinite, infinitely expanding horizon that can never be captured in any one notion, and yet the God who is ever nearer in radical love. A love that we can only, only partially ponder because we have these finite minds. But it is a love that will not let us go. An infinitely expanding horizon and an infinite love that will never let us go. All at the same time. That's how Karl Rahner responded to the, to, to the kind of horrors that he saw in World War II. He talked about a God that is expanding all of us, that is seeking to expand us beyond our boundaries. He was very influential, by the way, uh, on many people who did interfaith studies, like uh, Paul Knitter, um, who uh, was one of the greatest theologians of interfaith work, Christian theologians. He's the one who wrote a book that I've commended to you several times if you've been in my study groups. Uh, without Buddha, I could not be a Christian. Karl Rahner was uh, Paul Knitter's um, teacher. This infinitely expanding horizon so that we see, can see a love of God that is beyond us, through us, under us. Always seeking to expand 
our lives into one another's lives. That's how he responded to the horrors that he saw in his world. That's the God that he lifted up. It's the same God that we know, by the way, that we, when we ponder um, an, a, a, another key story for us as Christians, Moses before the burning bush, when Moses was, was called to preach to Pharaoh, let my people go, Moses complained and said, I can't do it. He said, so what's your name? Do you remember that story? You remember that, don't you? And, 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 and the burning bush, God in the burning bush responded with a very enigmatic name. I am that I am. Or it could be translated, I will be that I will be. Or it can be translated, I was that I was. It's this, it's this elusive notion of God that expands the horizon. This is kind of what Karl Rahner, I think, was responding to, what other theologians, what we should be doing today are expanding, are expanding into a notion of God that is, that is, that is ever pushing us outward. One Jewish scholar uh, in talking about the great I am of God, which is, this is very prominent, obviously, in Judaism, said that the interesting thing about the I am is that it's a verb that was artificially arrested into a noun, but as soon as it became a noun, it ran away and became a verb again. Isn't that great? Isn't that a great notion? This expanding, this ever-expanding notion. And this so fits with Paul's theology because as Brigitte called the, uh, the biblical scholar, she, she says that, that, that what Paul was about was what he called the politics, she calls the politics of love, which is lives creating lives in us that are, always, that, are, that are always losing that old, violent, competitive self, that hostile self at enmity with one another so that we can be in with and for one another capturing a much more robust sense of who we are in the other. That's who we're called to be. That's what Ephesians is talking about. We're called to be these, these, these people that pour ourselves, that, that are poured into by the grace of God and we pour out into one another. It's a wonderful image, isn't it? It's a baptismal image. And that's what we're called to be about. Some of you have been reading the book Cast, and uh, uh, we have a book group going on, and there's just this last uh, week we read something in that book, Isabella Wilkerson's book, where Isabella Wilkerson says that the great threat to the highest caste is any success in the lower caste. Isn't that astounding? Does that sound true? to the world that we live in? It's this competitive, violent world. Heather McGee uh, wrote a book on this titled The Sum of Us. She's an economist and she uh, talks about how uh, the American economy, culture, everything we do and everything we see is based on this sum zero reality that, um, that if, if, if some, especially at the bottom, gain something, then I'm, if I'm at the top, I'm going to have to lose something. And what she points to is that in economics, in reality, in community, it's a lie. 
It's an outright lie to say that because we do not live in a sum-zero world. We live in a win-win world where when one wins, we all win, especially coming from marginal communities where somebody from the marginal community wins, we all win, all of us. When somebody from a marginal community benefits, we all benefit. That's the world God calls us to. That's the reality that God calls us to. In a similar <clears throat> vein, uh, Brian Bannum says that race is the lie that I can be who I am without you, and my thriving depends on your dehumanization. But he says as Christians, that's not the way we live. We live that I cannot be who I am without you. And your dehumanization dehumanizes me. And then he uses this powerful image. He says, we are created to be fountains that are constantly being filled up and pouring out. And by the way, that's the same image that John Calvin uses of God. John Calvin said that God is the fountain of good, always pouring out goodness into the world, into us, so that we can pour it out into one another. Isn't that a beautiful notion? It's what we're called to be as fountains of good, fountains that are constantly being filled up and simultaneously pouring out, filling up, pouring out. Because the wall of hostility has been torn down in the cross. It's been named. The violence of the world has been named. It no longer has a stranglehold on us. We can ponder in our hearts something new, something else, a new humanity. The politics of love in which we leave that old violent self behind in order to realize a much more robust full self with one another and in God. For we are, my friends, fountains constantly being filled up and pouring out fountains of love, fountains of justice. May it be so. Amen.